You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit tvcresources.net. Good morning, church family. Uh, my name is Tyler Furlow. Uh, my wife, Lauren, and I, have uh, we've been members here at The Village for seven years. Uh, we have two beautiful girls, and uh, we serve in the areas of security, uh, worship, and on the hospitality team. Um, Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 90, uh, verses 10 through 12. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us the number of our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tyler. I told Tyler earlier, I hope we're friends when he's 70, because that mustache and that drawl is right. <laughs> hey, good morning. My name is Mason King. And if we haven't gotten to meet each other, I, uh, I serve as one of the elders here. I also oversee the Village Church Institute, Groups, and Care. And most weeks, you can find me in the training program on Wednesday night, where I lead the, uh, a kind of a 28-week-long intensive discipleship course. And we cover the whole story of the Bible the Bible applied to life, and then how we live out of our union with Christ. We actually just finished, we closed down year seven last week. So yeah, it's great. You can celebrate that. And then year eight starts in the fall, so it just so happens this is the application window. If you want to join us in the fall and come to the training program, you can apply now. They're open through the end of April. All right, so uh, if you have the, I don't know if you know these things, they're called paper and pen. If you have those, you can pull those out. Otherwise, you can just open your notes app on your phone. As we get started this morning, I want to talk about what it is to pursue a heart of wisdom. And I'm going to do that first by us answering some questions together. Now, you're not going to tell me your answers. You're going to write them down. You're going to hold on to them. Maybe you talk about them over lunch, but we're going to start here. What I'm looking for with these questions are the first things that pop into your mind. Now, I want you to write on adjectives. And in case you... Um, unique injunction junction like I do, you're grammatically challenged. Uh, think of a virtue or a character trait, all right? So think of kind, patient, rude, impatient, rude, loving, things like that. But I want to talk about, as we pursue wisdom, these questions. I'm not looking for your church answer, okay? First thing that pops in your head, and I'm going to squeeze you on time just to make sure to keep you honest. Not hyphenated phrases, single words. Are we clear? Okay. Here's the first question. Who do you hope to become? Like, how do you want others to describe you in five years? Three to five words, go. Okay, who are you becoming today, right now? And here's the clarifying question. If who you are today is the product of the choices from all your yesterdays, who are you becoming now? How would others describe you today if they watched your entire life over the last year? Three to five words. Okay, last one. Between the first and second questions who you want to be, and who you are right now. What do you tell yourself, or uh, how do you think God describes you right now? 
So what do you tell yourself God thinks to himself when he thinks of you? What do you tell yourself God thinks to himself when he thinks of you? And I'm not talking like not on your best day, but when you've blown it. Three to five words. Pencils down. (laughs) All right, so I've done this a few times, and the first list brings words like gentle, present, faithful, patient, wise, disciplined, balanced, humble, honest, joyful. How many of your lists resonate with that? I mean, what do you other people want to be? Not that? (laughs) Like, basically, this is, how do I want to be described at my funeral, right? Like, these are the eulogy virtues. I want to be awesome. Then I ask you, who are you today? The list that I typically will get back, and these are real answers I got recently. Irritable, like, who are you becoming today? Irritable, anxious, self-reliant, maturing, free, cynical, influenced, distracted, frazzled, too busy. Anybody resonate with that? Yeah? Oh, more of you are raising your hands now. All right. Um, The third question. How do you think God describes you right now? Fragile, difficult, apathetic, beloved, redeemed, weak, selfish, chosen, needy, yikes. One brother just said it. I was like, okay, I'm putting it up there. So look at your own answers. Like, what do you notice? The, the first column is our ideal self. It's how you want other people to describe us, right? That's who I want to be in five years. The second column is the light and shadow, the push and pull that we find within ourselves every day. The third is what we imagine the voice of God to be towards us. So that third column, most days, I am, I can be selfish, needy, I could for sure say yikes about myself sometimes, but also I, I need to know that I'm redeemed and beloved, right? So the question is not, how does God see you? Because you could give me a Bible answer. The question is, when you've blown it, what do you default to? In that moment, what do you tell yourself that God tells himself about you? Sometimes it's a mix of what we know we're supposed to say and then what we feel about ourselves. So, yeah, the column is true. But too often we mistake our own voice for the voice of God. And so depending on your bent, you could go towards shame or you could go towards license, right? I'm not enough, I'll never be enough, or... I'm good, I could actually be a little extra and we'll be okay. I think many Christians who feel shame, they think they should be farther along by now. Whether you came to Christ at six, 16, or 60, you might look at someone else and go, man, what happened? I thought I would be further along in holiness. And we hear accusations like, look at them. They're near your age, but they're so much more godly than you. What happened to you? 
You're not lovable. Just look at the choices you've made. Grace is for other people. Or you're 20 years into life with Christ and you're struggling with the same cycles of sin. God has to be disappointed with you. Look at the mess you've made. We compare ourselves to other people. We create standards of perfection that Superman couldn't reach. And when you and I fail to fly, we condemn ourselves. We embrace accusations like they're from God. And we shame ourselves where Christ calls us forward. So I want to encourage you and tell you this morning that Jesus sets the standard of relationship at his generosity, not your maturity. Jesus sets the standard of relationship at his generosity, not your maturity. Now, friends, we are all an ongoing process of change until the day we die. So regardless of where you are in the journey of life, you've been given another day, which means that you have the opportunity to make the choice to live into God's design. So in the end, the beauty we're wanting, the lightness and the joy that you and I long for is not found in an achievement, it's not found in a purchase, it's found in a person. I remind myself often that waking up in a new day is kind of an invitation and permission to play. Like I got another day, and so I can walk in habits that put me towards God's design instead of ignoring him. So when you think about growth in the Christian life, so many of us think we have to be perfect right away and we shame ourselves. And so I want to encourage you to not think about perfection, but to think about progress. So here's an illustration. Um, Say that you have noticed, you moved into a new neighborhood, and say you noticed your neighbor, his recycling bin is filled with a certain type of container, overflowing often. Didn't used to be that way, but um, now it is. And so you're doing the yard one day and you meet your neighbor, Pete, and you're like, hey man, my name's Mason. I'm new to the area. Um... Hey, there was a time in my life where I was overwhelmed with anxiety and fear and dread and didn't know how to find peace in life. But then I met Jesus and I found peace and I found security. Do you have a time like that in your life? And Pete's like, no, I don't. Like life was good and my wife left me and now I just drink until I get blacked out every night because I don't know what to do. So you talk with Pete and Pete comes to know Jesus and he lets you more into his life and he tells you, hey, for the last nine months, I've been stopping at the bar on the way home and I just drink until I forget. Or I'll just come home and just drink until I pass out. Kids are gone, my wife has left. I don't know what to do with myself. And I don't want to live like this anymore and it seems like life in Jesus is, that's what I've been looking for. And so for the next 21 days, Pete is sober. He fights tooth and nail to not drink and to not run to comfort in numbing himself. And then he has a terrible day at work and you don't see him. He doesn't come home that night, just notice the car's not in the driveway and then you get a text. And it's, hey, um, I, don't know, I don't know what happened. I... I had a hard day, and so I just stopped by for one drink, and then I've, I've woken up in someone's house. I don't know how I got here. So how do you respond to Pete at this point? You say, I mean, because he's like, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know if God loves me. I've messed it all up. I mean, you say like, yeah, man, I mean, 21 days, you're good, but now I'm not so sure. No, 
I mean, do you realize the fact that he would desire to lay down sin and had 21 days of grace-driven effort to stop what was destroying him? Like, that's grace. That is progress. Why would you condemn him? But friends, we condemn ourselves like that all the time. Like, it's easy to have empathy for Pete because he's fictional. I made him up. But you're real and you condemn yourself left and right every day. Don't you? I do. I expect perfection where Christ calls me towards progress. Change is slow, incremental, and often complicated because you and I are complex products of our choices our families of origin, our emotional health, the surrounding culture, and how we interpret our lives. And there's something that makes us feel like once we've been saved, we're not allowed to be a mess anymore. You feel that? It's, I'm just so surprised in myself and in other people when Christians who at their core say, I need a savior because I can't help myself. I keep doing what I don't do, what I don't want to do. And then after a couple years, it's like, I'm really afraid to tell people that I do what I don't want to do. The whole thing is grace. The whole thing, start to finish. It's not start by grace and end by works. That's Galatians, friends. (laughs) Why are we surprised by our own sin? Why are we surprised by the sin of others? We feel shame, so we want to hide it instead of realizing that Christ invites us forward. When this happens, you and I default to fix-it mode. So we can be like, hey, man, just tell me what I'm supposed to do, God. Just tell me how I can make this right. This hurts. I would like it not to hurt. How can I make it right? So we say, what, what do I do? And you look at the scriptures, and the heart of wisdom says, it's not about what you do, but it's about the kind of person you become. And God doesn't hide that answer, which is really great. I'm really thankful for that. He says, our, I mean, but our world has opted out of God's view of reality, so you and I have to work to see and live in his story. You and I value facts, proven results, and we want long-term change with short-term effort, right? How many of you ever tried Whole30? <laughs> yep. You ever just sign up for a gym and you might as well just go, I'm just giving you this cash, I'm not coming. Um, it's mostly just resolutions. February, I'm not going to be here, right? Yeah. You and I expect decades of life change on a four-week cycle. And friends, decades of life change, they take decades. But we want perfection in three days. You ever want to learn a new skill? You ever try to learn a foreign language? And you're just like, hmm, I don't want to mess up. I don't want to say the wrong thing in front of you because I'm going to be embarrassed. But I'm just going to not do that until I can say it perfectly. Good luck. Or you, not, you master a new skill and you expect to be great at it at three days. You expect to be perfect by five. And after five days, you're like, well, this thing's broken. No, you are. Yeah. Like, we, we have to have patience with this. We are impatient with ourselves and we believe God is just as, if not, more impatient with us than we are. But I want to ask you, friends, where did you get that notion of God? Not from the Bible. I would suggest you got it from people who hurt you. You got it from shame, from accusation, from the enemy of God and those whom God loves, who is Satan. You got it from your own interpretation of life. 
divided within ourselves, so we think God has to be divided towards us. And the Bible says that he is rich in mercy, slow to anger, doesn't want anyone to perish. You know, we teach the attributes of God, and three big ones are that he's omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent, which I prefer these definitions. He's everywhere, knows everything, and has all power, right? And in being everywhere, God is outside of time, which is like just a whole different sermon. And he's not limited to this moment like you and I are. Like, I am limited to this moment, and now this one, because that one's gone. But God stands outside of all of them, right? And if we are in Adam... He can look at Adam and see all of humanity. I mean, like, here it's Adam. Okay, that happened. You. He's outside of time and he sees it and he's not surprised. You're not going to wake up one day and he's going to go, actually, I want my money back. Um, that's a surprise to me. I didn't realize what was happening. He sees it all. And so when we feel shame, like we've got to go run and hide, he's saying, no, it's actually an invitation forward. It's an invitation to grace. And I look at all that and I think, man, it's just got to mean he's not in a hurry. But we are. Because our culture is about progress and productivity and speed. And anything that takes time, we think isn't worth the time it takes. But holiness is slow. Sanctification is slow. Growing in personal holiness is slow. And sometimes it's just too boring for us to stick with it. It's in his patience that God calls us to progress towards holiness. So I've been around church and church folk long enough to know that you and I get confused about what progress in personal holiness looks like. Uh, we count being around godly people as being a godly person. We equate sinning less with having a change of heart, but dieting from sin doesn't change our appetites. It just exposes them. I have to remind myself constantly, as someone who's paid to do Christian work, I have to remind myself constantly that working for Christ is not the same as abiding in Christ. My job doesn't supplant my relationship with him. And proximity to godly things doesn't make you godly inside. The change of heart we need isn't found merely in what we do, it's about who we become on the inside. So Dallas Willard is known for saying this. He says, the most important thing in your life is not what you do, it's who you become. That's what you will take into eternity. You are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's universe. How many of us have traded pursuing holiness for productivity? Where have we confused maturity with a license? And now we're in danger of falling into foolishness. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Ooh. 
It's a great danger to us personally if we take advantage of God's patience and we don't progress in personal holiness. And friends, I read that quote by Carson and I think, yeah, we all do that. We all relax a little here, a little there, and we say, oh, I'm so wise now, I don't have to do that. I don't think we're fooling ourselves when we're honest. I don't think softening, like looking more like the world so you can soften life as an exile, that's not a good look for Christians. That's not what we really want. And one reason I think we make the trade of focusing on what we can get done versus who we become is that you and I assume there will always be more time. There will always be more time. Like, I can wait until later to pray because I'm really tired. I have an um, unofficial album of screenshots on my phone. I don't know if you ever do this. It's just the snooze bar, where if I use my phone as an alarm, I reach out and I try and hit it in my sleep, and I take a screenshot of my alarm. I have like 50 of them. It happens. But we go, oh, I just I sleep more. God will understand. Or, you know what, I'm, I'm going to wait to read that. I've got to respond to these text messages. Oh, now I'm in Instagram. Oh, now I'm on the news. Oh, I should go buy that thing or fill this order. You know what? I can wait to call that person. I really need to go catch up on the show. It's easy to assume there will always be more time, which is why we need to talk about the day you die. Now, it could seem weird, but I grew up around death, and some of you who know me might be like, eh, it makes sense now. Um, in grade school, my mom and I made daily trips to the nursing home. So rooms of church members filled with the fullness and the lack of a lifetime. These were echoes of homes built with other hopes. And I got really good at these short routine visits. Uh, a firm smile, a fragile hug. And in middle school, I knew what waxen skin felt like. And so in my mind, the smells of the hospice wing at All Saints mixed with the buttered popcorn in the lobby. The crowded family waiting room, which is just another room pretending to be anywhere but there. I remember holding warm bread in my lap that my mom would bake that we would take to the family room in the hospice wing. And then there was the back half of high school, these last two years where we packed and unpacked and then packed and unpacked the ever-shrinking number of suitcases for my grandfather as we moved him out of his house into a nursing home, into Medicaid, into Medicare, into another space until we moved him into the hospice wing. And then the cancer took him. And I remember getting the phone call, hey, it's, it's time. And they're fresh out of college. I can tell you, I can still taste the corned beef and rye from Carshawn's Deli in my hometown in Fort Worth. I make a great Reuben. I could smell those things, but I can also smell the cancer and its effects in my seventh grade Sunday school teacher who's sitting across from me. So Mike took an interest in me in seventh grade and just wanted to teach me about Jesus. And after college, I sat with him. And I knew he had gotten sick, and then I saw what the cancer had done. And I sat with my friend, and we got up and walked to the car, and he was on his cane, which was new to me since the last time I had seen him. And then I took him home. And when he was home, he sat in his chair and he just looked at me and he said, he smiled. He said, Mason, I'm going home. 
And he was ready. I'll tell you, in the last 15 years, both my parents have received malignant cancer results. I remember being halfway across the world getting a phone call from my mom, because I don't know about your parents, my parents are really great. They call me on the front end of everything, not after the test results come back. No, it was, hey, I need to talk to you. And my mom's probably watching, so it's going to be great. But it's, it's always after the fact. It's like, hey, I need to talk to you. This has happened. Two stage four tumors in my dad's throat. Like, I remember the feeling of my head hitting the wall and then me sliding down as I just thought, I'm 5,000 miles from home. I'll tell you, these days, my parents, my sister, and I celebrate moments like ringing that bell at the end of treatment, of getting to have birthdays and holidays and just Tuesday dinner together. Because we didn't think we were going to get them. Which brings us to a Latin phrase. It's called memento mori. In English, it translates to, remember, you must die. You ready for that tattoo? (laughs) Just a little skull, Latin. Death is part of life. And most of us are doing our best to ignore it altogether. But living in light of death fuels Christian hope. That's what I want to encourage you with this morning. So artists throughout history have put skulls on the desks of theologians, philosophers, and saints. So here's Caravaggio. That's St. Jerome. And Jerome is the one who translated uh, the Bible into the Latin Vulgate, which the church used for about 1,000 years. Uh, He spent about 40 years in a cave next to where they think that Christ was born. And he didn't, you know, they didn't have central heat or air. So 40 years in the cave, and there he is with this uh, secondhand desk item. And he is, guys, it's a skull. It's used. And, um, okay, some of you are with me, but he's got this as he's working through things, and it's a reminder, life is a vapor. Life is a vapor. Time is fleeting. I bought one recently for my desk. It's off Amazon, don't worry, it's plastic. And uh, my coworker, Garrick, saw it, and he's like, why'd you buy a little one? weird? And I was like, well, having a full-size one would be weird, right? And he's like, oh, I, think it's, I think it's both strange. And it's like, okay. Um, besides skulls on desks and in paintings, others throughout history have contemplated death in order to value their life. So Jonathan Edwards, who's one of my favorite pastors, uh, he's in New, uh, New Haven, Connecticut in the 18th century, he had these resolutions and he said, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Resolve to think much on all occasions of my own dying and the common circumstances which attend death. And then in 2005, just skip forward a little bit, 2005, uh, giving the commencement speech to Stanford, Steve Jobs said, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything... All external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving what is only truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. And after receiving his cancer diagnosis and being told to put his affairs in order, Jobs explained that that meant to try to tell your kids everything you thought you'd have the next 10 years to tell them in just a few months. It means to make sure everything is buttoned up so it'll be as easy as possible for your family. It means to say your goodbyes. I think sometimes Carly, who's right here, she gets, she's like, hey, Mason, just go ahead and leave. Like, it's okay. 
because I, I always turn around and give more hugs. I always stop and want people to know in my family and those that I care for, I'd never want them to guess how I feel about them because I don't know the last time I'll get to tell them. I want them to hear my voice and read my words long after I'm with Christ. So Christians contemplate death to live in reality. And if we ignore that death is part of creaturehood, we deny the power of Christ's defeat of death and our resurrection hope. So I regularly exercise. I try to watch what I eat. And I've been known to buy a few vitamins, right? Yeah, a few vitamins. And I also attend every funeral I can. And we've started to take our kids both to honor the dead and to face death head on. Facing your own mortality brings the larger questions into focus. It might seem sad, but soberness is not the enemy of joy. Contemplating your own death can lead to delight in Christ. Because I tell you, friends, if the Lord tarries one day, his tomb isn't the only one who's going to be empty. Remembering your death brings awareness that we're not in control of our lives and could shuffle off this mortal coil at any point. So I got a few questions for you now that I've cheered you up. (laughs) What sin, habit, or conversation are you telling yourself you'll take care of later? What sin, habit, or conversation are you telling yourself you'll take care of later? Do you need to reconcile with a brother or sister and you're putting it off? What are you avoiding? What's like, if you're cool on the outside, what's churning on the inside? What are you avoiding that needs to be dealt with? Friends, I don't know when you're going to die. I hope you have a long life, but I know that you and I are not promised tomorrow, let alone this afternoon. If we act like death will never come, we will live like there's always more time, always another chance. And James says, hey, You who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. That's why I started with Psalm 90. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, but their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Edwards had one last resolution I want you to read. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. I mean, this guy's the guy you want. Like, he's first to the party, right? He's just super serious, guys. Come on. Um, In high school, downtown Fort Worth, you'd be trying to walk to get the movie theater, and you would pass these street preachers. You ever seen a street preacher? Just really chill, not in your face. And uh, polite. So you'd pass them, and they'd ask you a question. They'd say, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? And I think about that now, and I think, if I were to die tonight, what have I left undone before the Lord? What have I left undone with others? So believing that God is patient with us, making progress and living out of our union with Christ And embracing the reality that our days are numbered is pretty humbling, isn't it? Like this is, if you're like, I'm going to go sit in a cheery conversation. You're like, let's think about our limits. I need someone to be patient with me because I'm not able to do all things. Progress is hard work, and I will never reach perfection in myself. I need someone else to be enough for me. And honestly, friends, there's many days I don't like that. 
because the world tells you you're more than enough. I don't know how or when I'm going to die, and it's scary to not be in control of how long I'm going to live. I'd like to be. But who I become and what I do matters, and you and I are going to be held accountable for both, both who we become and what we do, which means ultimately that we're not in charge. Someone else has more power over our lives than we do. And lest you be afraid, God is good and can be trusted. This leaves us at times feeling vulnerable, this fear, because if we're not able to perform, perfect, or control ourselves and our lives, many of us will just avoid reality. Plenty of people do, right? Plenty of people just trying to find a way to avoid reality or prolong death or eliminate it. Or we come to terms with the fact that we have actual limits. But you and I would rather ignore often being held accountable for our actions and live in the moment. We don't want to think long-term because there's always more time to change. Imagine if you saw your limits not as something to rail against or run from, but as something to run to. It might just look like gaining a heart of wisdom to order your life in God's design. So I, I love reading books by people who have been given a lot of years and they uh, have some wisdom and they turn around and try and share it with other people. Because I'm like, I'm young, I'm an idiot. I don't want to make a bunch of mistakes. If I read your mistakes, maybe I won't make them. That's how I feel. And so I read these books and what I love hearing and what I'm reminded of is the same thing I saw on my dad's face when I saw him choke up as we were listening to Cats in the Cradle. Remember that one? You're welcome. And... <laughs> It is, no one's thinking, man, I wish I worked more. I wish that I worked 80 hours a week and maybe my kids would have learned my middle name later. It's, I wish I was home more. I wish I worried about the actual things that were important and needed worry. I wish I laughed more, played more, had more fun because time is fleeting. But I'm looking around the room and most of us are around midlife or past it. Sorry. And it's faster than you think, right? Amen? It's faster than you think. I told a friend of mine the other day, I feel 22 on the inside, but then I wake up and I'm like, what happened? Um, For those of you who are even ahead of me in years, I think you would say, age brings wisdom and perspective about what's really important. For some of us, it takes too long to realize how our parents were able or unable to show love and that it was there all along. I'm going to ask you this morning, how long will it take for you to realize that God's love is different and better than how anyone else has loved you in your life? God's love is different and better than how anyone else has loved you in life. And what kind of healing would come if you let yourself be loved by God? What seems morbid, thinking about your death, is actually fertile soil for valuing God's patience and making progress in personal holiness. We don't need to fear death. We just need to live in light of it. It's a reality for everyone, and because of Christ, we have hope. We have hope for life and for life to come. So, friends, our days are numbered. Our God is trustworthy. 
and your shame has been dealt with. God has made a place for you at his table. But the question is, will you accept his invitation? Will you believe that he is who he says that he is and what he says about you is true? So one of my favorite poets is uh, this 17th century Welsh priest named George Herbert. And I know he's your favorite too, so it's okay. And uh, when he was dying, he gave an unpublished collection of his poetry to a friend. And he said, hey, if you, if you think it would benefit anybody, just do with it what you like. Otherwise, throw it in the fire. His friend read it, and I have a copy of it that I read all the time. And I'm so glad that his friend published it. It's some of the most theologically dense and rich poetry you will ever find, and it's structured with a progression. And it wasn't until preparing to uh, talk with you today that I realized this poem and its placement as the last poem, man, it holds so much significance for me now seeing where he put it. Because the poem is about an invitation. It's about our shame and if we will have faith. So I want to read it for you. It's called Love Three by George Herbert. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here, love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. And love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it does deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. How many of us grow slack in confidence of Christ's invitation to draw close? How sweet it is that Christ himself draws near to us to assure us because he knows our frame. He's aware of our failures. He's provided for our needs. And he's prepared us a seat. So Christian, I want you to hear the invitation and the encouragement of the Lord that today you could believe on Christ that you, Christian, are united to him in faith, which means your shame is done with and you are safe in his care. And how good it is to be under God's mighty hand. I would ask you this, have you been putting off habits of personal holiness? Where could you begin again today? When you look at your life, are you frustrated by your limits when you compare what you have to others? Or do you see life as a gift given to you to produce something in you? An eternal, an eternal unceasing being who's going to be in, in God's place with God. So many times we get frustrated with the things that we have to deal with, not, really, not realizing that they're gifts because we just can't see them as gifts at the time. You and I are not entitled to everything we want, but we act like it. And how tiring is it to be frustrated in our entitlement? You can set it down. 
and cultivate a heart of gratitude. Where do you need to believe love's voice, Christ's voice, over the voice of your shame? If you're not a Christian, well, the Lord invites you to his table. This is good news, friend. Like the Lord invites you to his table. You can sit free from shame and guilt by believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you want to know more about that, we'd love to tell you. But the skinny of it is that you and I were born with hearts sick with sin. with sin. We couldn't redeem ourselves. And we were born not only with sick hearts, but we wanted sick things. And God has sent a way to rescue us by sending his son. And by belief in him who is alive, we need not fear death. I just ask you, if you're not a Christian, are you willing to make space to believe that you can be loved by God? So all it takes is to ask, to ask for faith that he's real. Friends, our life is a vapor. None of us know when we're going to die. None of us should try and avoid death because honestly, none of us can. But those in Christ need not fear death. Christ has defeated death and taken your shame and he's offered you a seat at the table. Will you take him at his word? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your patience, your grace, your mercy, your abounding love. Where we are so impatient with ourselves, you are patient with us and you call us forwards. Would you help us? Where we condemn ourselves, would we speak back to our hearts, knowing that you do not condemn us? Holy Spirit, would you help us to believe in faith that God is not just good for us, but good to us, and that he's kind. Jesus, we thank you. You are our hope. In your name we pray, amen.